This is the Stop Time Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Hopkins, and I'm here to engage you in thought-provoking motivational conversations around practicing the art of living in the moment. I'm a certified life coach, and I'm excited to dig deep and offer insights into embracing who we are and where we are at. So my next guest is the is the number one New York Times bestselling author of 27 novels. Her books have been translated into 34 languages in 35 countries. Four of her novels have been made into television movies, including My Sister's Keeper, starring Cameron Diaz. Her novel, Small Great Things, has been optioned for motion picture adaptation and is set to star Viola Davis and Julia Roberts. Her two uh, young adult novels, Between the Lines and Off the, Off the Page, co-written with her daughter, Samantha Van Leer, have been adapted and developed by the authors into a musical called Between the Lines, which is expected to premiere off-Broadway later this year. We're going to talk a little bit about that and some other fun stuff. I'm so excited, Jody, to have you here on the show. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, it's nice to be here. Thanks for asking me. If it's okay, I'd like to jump in just for a second with something that you wrote. Actually, in the I came across it in the preface of the Breathe libretto. Great. Uh, and for those listening who don't know, Breathe is a musical that was conceived and written by Jody and playwright Timothy Allen McDonald uh, during isolation as the world around us was changing before our eyes. Um, Jody wrote, we wanted to memorialize how we were all experiencing the same fear and frustration, and we wanted to do it on stage. After all, what's theater but a person isolated in their own seat, having the same feelings as the person beside them because of the performance they're watching? You capture that brilliantly. Hmm. You know, it's funny, as, as an artist, as a writer, almost as soon as the pandemic started, I was thinking, how are we going to memorialize this? How are we writers going to put this down on paper so that we 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 categorize everything we've learned, we catalog it, and we don't forget, you know? And certainly theater has been um, the medium for a lot of massive world events that um, were devastating and that have shook us. You know, you look at something like Come From Away or you look at Rent, um, all of those things, The Normal Heart were all written, uh, you know, really to um, memorialize a tragedy, a great tragedy. And we were thinking, Tim and I, Tim McDonald and I were thinking about this when we came home in March um, the last one of the last things that I did in the real world before it all shut down was go to the wedding of Ariel Jacobs. Ariel is a lovely Broadway performer who um, is attached to Between the Lines. And we all we all trooped down to Mexico for her wedding. So I went with Tim and his husband and our director, Jeff Calhoun and his husband. And we were all seated at a table together. We had a lovely time. All of them came home with COVID. Oh I am the only person who did not catch it, which is actually really good because I have asthma and I don't think it would have gone well for me. But, you know, we all kind of came back and after Tim recovered, we started talking about this, about how how we could make sense of what was going on. And almost immediately we sat down and we decided um, two things. We wanted to employ as many people in the industry as humanly possible because nobody was making money. Mm-hmm. And we really wanted to... Um, we really wanted to, to tell a variety of stories. We kept seeing it like a suite of stories. And we sat down to write what started as four vignettes. Hmm. Um, and we looked at four different people who at the 
you know, when the pandemic hit, were affected different ways, their relationships, their health, their um, their uh, communities. And we wanted to really run the gamut based on what we were seeing and experiencing with our friends and other people, you know, that, that we knew. And so we began to write short stories, little short stories, mm-hmm. where we sort of set up each of the vignettes that we were then going to turn into a musical vignette. Um, as I said, we started with four of these. And somewhere in the middle of doing all this, uh, George Floyd was murdered. And we really believed that the protests that erupted um, were very much tied into what was happening in the world in the pandemic. I think we were forced to have a racial reckoning that we have pushed aside way too often because when you're sitting there and the world is shut down, you can't help but look in that mirror and see things Mm -hmm. that maybe you didn't want to acknowledge. So we really wanted to add a vignette that included something about the Black Lives Matter movement. And we also knew we were not the right writers for that. And so we turned to Douglas Lyons, um, who I think said yes within 10 seconds of being this. <laughs> and he and Ethan Pachar wrote this vignette that became the fifth vignette in Breathe. And so we then, we had gone out to four different songwriting teams prior to that, plus Ethan and Douglas. So we had we had five teams working on five different vignettes. Tim and I were writing the librettos for the four of them. And working with all of these collaborators was amazing and totally different because everyone needed us in a different way. And the vignettes ranged from the sublime and the silly uh, to the rom-com to, um, uh, to great tragedy, you know, the greatest loss of all, which would be the loss of a life. And as every time that we had a meeting and this became more physically realized, we decided we didn't just want five songwriting teams. We also wanted to have five directors. And we wanted Jeff Calhoun to be a supervising director for us, in addition to doing one of the pieces. Then we started to think, how do you make this happen during a pandemic? Um, And that is quite a challenge. Uh, When we workshopped it, which we realized we had to do, we actually had three rooms running at once at the 92nd Street Y. We COVID tested everyone who came into it. We asked for two actors in all, in most cases when we could, two actors who had quarantined together. And each room had its own stage manager, its own music director, uh, its own director, the two actors, and all the creatives zoomed in. Wow. And yeah, so it was like, we were constantly trying to think outside the box to make it happen. Mm -hmm. And even when we actually filmed it for uh, streaming, we filmed it at the 92nd Street Y, um, the cast never met each other. Mm. In between each vignette, the entire theater had to be cleaned. And I was never there. I still had my asthma. I had no vaccine. I was stuck here in New Hampshire. So I I watched the filming <laughs> of that musical from a very weird sideways angle in a camera. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And it was wild. It was really, really wild to do. But, you know, it's funny. I I feel like during this pandemic, when it came to the theater industry, people fell into two camps and you could very quickly tell who was in which camp, the ones that were holding their hands over their head going, the sky is falling and burying themselves in the sand or the ones who said, all right, now let's get to work. How do we do this? Mm-hmm. And um, I'm really proud of breathe. I'm delighted by how beautifully it came out and how moving it was for so many people who who saw it and wrote us to say that it was healing and um, really helped them make sense of 2020, um, including people who had lost family members during the pandemic, which was great. Uh, 
I'm even more proud that the Library of Congress reached out to us and asked to have Breathe be part of their archives, uh, which they are creating about artwork that was made during the pandemic. And I was like, oh, wow, that makes me feel like we actually accomplished exactly what we set out to do. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm I'm so curious about two things. One is one is um, you talked about that those two camps, which I totally get. And from my yeah. perspective as a coach, we talk about lenses, right? We talk about you know they they all serve us at different times, right? So there's yeah. the the victim lens. Things are happening to us, you know, and we shift yeah, yeah. shift up the ladder depending on the circum you know circumstance. Yeah. And so I am super curious to ask you, you know, like talk to me about that space between when stuff was when you were a victim, because you were, we were all victims. And when you, when you put it into motion, talk to me about that space. Lisa, that was terrible. I mean, you know, in this community, how hard it is to cross the finish line. Mm -hmm. Between the Lines is a project that we have been working on for seven years. Um, Tim is our official book writer, but has been lovely about Having that was how I learned how to write a libretto, actually, mm. by working up between the lines with him. And we, um, my daughter, who wrote the the original novel, the source material, with me, we have both been instrumental in in helping craft that libretto. We found the sound the songwriters. Um, you know, we built that show from the ground up with the incredible assistance of Daryl Roth, who is amazing and who's believed in this project from day one. Um, but we did our out of town in Kansas City. We paid our dues. And so we had really fought hard to get where we were. And we finally had a spot at second stage. And we were like, here we go. I had a, a room. I was all ready to move to New York for six weeks, you know, during the rehearsal process. We were so excited. I had, I literally had boxes packed with the stuff that I was taking to New York. And when the pandemic hit, I immediately reached out and I said to the Airbnb host, I'm going to postpone this for a week. Mm. We thought, we were, you know, two weeks, it was two weeks at the beginning. And I obviously was not going to start rehearsals in New York as I thought I was going to a week later. And that two weeks grew and ballooned and everything shut down. And eventually one day I had to call the Airbnb host and say, I'm not coming. Mm. And I have a charmed life. I have a husband I love to death. I have three amazing, healthy children who are making the world a better place. I live in a beautiful area. Um, I love my dogs. I mean, I've got it all, right? Mm. I've had success in my career. I can't tell you how hard I cried that day because that was a colossal loss. To be that close to a finish line and to have something that no one had on their bingo card make you lose it mm. was so hard for me to wrap my head around. I am the kind of person who gets stuff done. I do. I don't procrastinate. I I make things happen when I want them to happen. I engineer things and I work hard. And this was something I couldn't fix. And that was really hard for me. And it felt like grieving. It took me many, many months to get over that. Mm. And, you know, even though we were technically we were in hiatus we were we were just you know the plane was circling for us we we weren't dead yet we also knew that second stage already had a season for 2021 and we weren't going to be part of it and you know we do actually have a future for between the lines i can say that now mm. um, i can't officially tell you what it is cuz it hasn't been announced yet but it's all good news and <laughs> yet that was really really hard 
And that wasn't the only thing that I lost too, because in addition to Between the Lines, Tim and I have adapted The Book Thief as a musical. Mm. And that is that was supposed to open in uh, right outside of Manchester in the United Kingdom this year. Obviously, that did not happen. And it was all pushed another year. So, you know, now I have I have things happening in 2022, allegedly. But to be totally honest, I'm very curious about how I'm going to mount a musical in the UK when I can't technically get there yet. Mm. Um, we had a workshop uh, a few weeks ago with my creative team in one space for the first time in two years. And our director was supposed to come from England. Mm. Couldn't come. No. We had 10 hour Zoom days with her. Mm. That's, it's so interesting. Um, and it makes sense. Thank you for sharing that because yeah. I mean, those are specifics, but that's your life. So, you know, no, no apologies necessary. I mean, those yeah. were huge things. And I love, I love how you sort of, it's analogous to that, the idea of not being able to make the finish line, especially someone like yourself who, who always takes charge, always takes the reins, yeah. you know, is aware of, of right. privilege, is aware of all of these things. Yeah. And um, that must've been really tricky for you. What, what did you learn about yourself during that time? I learned that it's okay to have a loss. You can't compare your loss to someone else's. I can tell you that during this pandemic, everybody lost something, right? Now, in some cases, it was a job. In some cases, it was a person. Um, in my case, it was something that I had been looking forward to for almost mm. a decade. Uh, for other people, it could have been a, a wedding. It could have been um, a job. It could have been a, uh, a vacation. I mean, there's always, everyone lost something. And whether you were three years old or 18 years old or 30 or 70, yeah. we were all sacrificing something. Just because you didn't sacrifice the same thing as someone else did not mean you didn't feel it. Mm. So I think first, the first thing I learned was to give myself permission to grieve something and also to recognize, um, talk about oversharing, but I travel a lot. You know, I'm on book tour a lot of the year. I do research on site when I'm researching a book. Uh, I'm in New York at least once a month, or I used to be in New York at least once a month for either publishing stuff or for stuff with a musical. And when, when this hit and I, I literally stayed in my house for 15 months because of my asthma, mm. I didn't go shopping. I didn't, I didn't go into a store for over 15 months. And my husband was so excited. He was like, isn't this great? Mm. Isn't it great that we get to spend all this time together? And yes, it was great. I love him and I love being with him, but I was also very aware of what I wasn't doing. Yep. And so I, I think, you know, I learned that I, I can give myself permission to be sad. And I also learned that when you're angry at the world, I think you have a choice. You have a choice to either remain angry at the world and I don't know, lash out on Twitter or do something that is ultimately not constructive. It might help you feel better in that moment, but you can also take that anger and say, what am I going to do with this? Yeah. Because if you can't control one area of your life, you may be able to control another area. Mm. Interesting. It's, it's, you know, not surprising you use the word control, you know, I, I mean, mean <laughs> 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 no, I love it though. I love it though. Cause you're very cognizant. I can, I can feel that you're very cognizant of, of your superpower. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's also your Achilles heel in a way, isn't it? A hundred percent. Yeah, It really is. I never expected to live through something that would 
that I really had so little control over. So little, you know, that, that really still shakes me now. But do you know what the coolest thing is? It really strikes me that since you are the what if queen, right? I mean, I, yeah. I, I, right. And, and so you are the one that always yeah. asks what if, and that's like your zone, right? That's where you live with, with possibilities of stories sure. and, and, yes. and that's where your flow is. And so you were given a front row seat to a what if that you were out of control of, because, right? 100%. Yeah. And certainly writing breathe was my way of manifesting mm. control in some way of wrapping my head around it. And interestingly, the reason I, I called Tim and I was like, we need to do this in theater for the reason that you cited when you read, you know, that the part of what I wrote um, in the libretto. Mm-hmm. But I, for me, it was also because I didn't know how to do it in a novel yet. Mm-hmm. I couldn't wrap my head around that. And, you know, I do, I love these two different types of writing that I do. I love it because they're so different. And when I'm working a lot with Tim on a show and then I come back to my office to write a novel, I'm always like, where is he? Why am I here alone? You know, (laughs) and the collaboration in theater is what, what I am absolutely addicted to because Mm -hmm. when you're a novelist, it's very solitary. So, you know, I think that for me, writing breathe helped me figure out how I was going to tell that story in a novel. And eventually when we finished breathe, that's what I did. I sat down and I wrote a book that I didn't think I was going to write, that I wasn't contracted to write that, just, you know, I, I felt like I had to write it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I've always said, you know, in many ways, novels are therapy for the author and that is wish you were here. And that's coming out in November, you know, and it's really, again, it's my way of how to take a novel and wrap, wrap the pandemic inside it in a way that hopefully leaves you as a reader feeling, um, a little, maybe a little healing. And I think understanding a little bit more about yourself and what you've learned and what is important. That was what I think really mattered to me. The things that I thought were important turned out to not always be important. And the things that I didn't ascribe value to turned out to be very important. Yeah. Perspective, right? It's so interesting because with breathe in a way, you know, you talk about the the difference in, in your, you know, your readiness and your approach is that you, you were a character in breathe. I mean, you were living it. You were, you know, you weren't creating it. Protagonist. Yeah, exactly. Whereas it makes sense that with, with this new, with this new piece, which the wish we, the wish you were here, um, which sounds fantastic, by the way, it sounds like that gave you enough time. I don't know what the timeline of writing was, but to sort of experience it like you did. I know that I know in your research that you go to prisons, you go everywhere to research. So you, you had sort of lived in that isolation yeah. Did this experience as an artist live yeah. the breathe experience. And then Jody, the writer who does the what ifs was able to take that into a fictional thing yeah. with your new novel. Right. Yeah. And for breathe, it was what, one of the things I loved the most about breathe was that people would come to it from all walks of life and they would be like, Oh my God, that was, yes, that was my life. Mm. That, that was what it was like in my house at that moment, you know, and people could relate to, if you couldn't relate to all five vignettes, you could relate to one of them. Absolutely. Yeah. And I love that people could find themselves in it and also find the things that we found when we were writing it, we were writing it starting in like April and there were things we already had forgotten for March. Like, oh, do you yeah. remember when we were washing our broccoli, you know, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and we weren't wearing masks yet and, and all the stuff that, that we have sort of already let fall by the wayside. We wanted to memorialize all that. So I, I do think that, um, 
part of that, yes, was living through writing, breathe and, and really creating those five different vignettes and five different scenarios. But also when I turned to the novel and I started to think about the pandemic, I did have to do research and I wound up doing it all online. Mm-hmm. You know, I was doing Zoom interviews and taping them and transcribing them. And I was talking to medical professionals who were on the front lines. And I was talking to people who had survived COVID and after being hospitalized for a very long time. And um, I was actually shocked by that because I, I decided I was going to go on social media and say, okay, did you, you know, did you have these symptoms? Were you mm. um, hospitalized? I would say within 10 minutes, I had 200 responses, wow. 10 minutes. And these were people who wanted to tell their story because they said, we want people to know this is real and we want them to know what we experienced. Yeah. Oh my gosh. No. So, so, so important. Are there any what ifs in your life that you'd be willing to pursue, you know, in the story of your life? You know, like I said, I've had a pretty charmed existence. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the what if for me would be what if I hadn't stopped teaching a million years ago and, uh, and didn't write for a living, you know, and it was really a, um, a nexus of affairs that led to that. I was, I was married at the time. Um, I was pregnant with my, my first son. I was working at a school district in Concord, Massachusetts as a new English teacher. Uh, and they pink slipped all six new teachers the first day of classes because they didn't have enough money in the budget next year. So we all knew we were going to be fired at the end of the year. And I got pregnant. And I was like, well, I guess I'm going to leave and, you know, raise this kid. And I, when I left, I, I was writing, you know, when, when my son was an infant and he was asleep and then my husband would come home from work and he would watch the baby and I would go write. And then I got pregnant again. And I, I kind of just kept doing that. And it was in part because my husband could support us, you know, I didn't have to, I didn't have to go back to teaching right away because it, it would have been a watch with daycare anyway. Um, (laughs) that I was able to do that. I had that support, but there is a world in which I went back to teaching and just became a really good English teacher. You know? <laughs> and, and I do think about that. I mean, I, that was sort of a, a weird confluence of events that led me to be at home at a certain time, working on a different, a different piece of my brain and a different craft. Yeah. Um, so I, I, that's probably the biggest what if. It's so cool. Um, it stands out to me that, um, and again, no judgment whatsoever. It's just, you know, again, as a coach, I just listen, but, um, it it stands out to me that you went to the past, not the future. It's funny, you know, like, yeah, Yeah. it's true, but I like to think that I, I, I'd like to hope that my future is still, you know, fungible enough that I can make the things happen that I want to. I think that's the difference. Yeah, it's 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 so interesting, isn't it? I mean, yeah. again, it sort of speaks to your appreciation for the choices that you made for the people that supported you. You mentioned your husband and yeah. and all of that. I mean, and looking back and seeing the gift and everything as you as you've done with the right. pandemic. And I think the thing for me is like I I became so addicted to working on musicals because because as I said of the collaboration and the fact that Tim and I have a great partnership as writers and um and I love working with him and I love working with songwriters and I love that it's different every time. Mm. And I love the Jenga of putting together a show. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that when you pull one of, one of the pieces out, everything else starts to crumble around you until you figure out a way to shore it back up again. Um, yeah. I love being given a Lego set of a show 
and being told, take the entire thing apart and now make something else that people recognize, because that's pretty much what a rewrite is. And um, so I, for me, that kind of creativity is something that is so fun to me to tap into at this point in my life. I mean, I'm 55 years old. I could coast a little, but I really, I really okay. like this. I really like this. And it's like, this is my goal now. Okay. I got the publishing thing. I got it. I feel confident in my publishing and my, you know, my novels. I want to make sure that I'm writing something that people get to see in the theater. That's what I want to do next. That's like, awesome. I'm not done. I'm just not done yet. Hey, um, how do you want to be remembered? <laughs> so um, <laughs> this is a running joke in my family because with my daughter, who is a writer, you know, and um, at one point I had said that what I, I wanted to be remembered the way Charlotte from Charlotte's Web is remembered. <laughs> and she goes, good friend, better pick. And I was like, that is not the quote. <laughs> she was a good writer and an even better friend but okay <laughs> so um I think that I will be remembered as a writer which I think is great because it's something I've worked very hard at my whole life um I hope I am also I, I hope that I'm remembered as someone who made a made people open their minds a little bit mm. that would be a great legacy because that's what I try to do when I approach a project why is that important to you because that is how I think we change the world, one mind at a time. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, what do you know will be true about you no matter what happens? That's a good question. Um, I think that I will always try to do the best I can at any given moment. And I think that's a kind of, that's an important lesson to learn because there are some moments you may not be at your very best. But, you know, you're still giving it your all. Mm -hmm. I want to challenge myself in a way that keeps me fresh and keeps my material fresh. Mm. So I will constantly try to find a way to continue to learn, challenge, grow at my craft so that it becomes fresh and interesting to a reader. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and, I mean, that comes across in each you know, consecutive thing that you create 100%. I have a what if for you. Right. <laughs> I know what, no, but seriously, what if, what if you couldn't write? What if suddenly writing wasn't a thing? What if, you know, it either, I don't know, there's two ways of thinking it, you yeah. know, one, one would be that it, you knew it and it was taken away from you. And the other is yeah. just, it doesn't exist, but whichever one sort of floats your boat, what, what if? I mean, well, writing is always going to be a thing. The thing that it might not be is a publishing thing. Hmm. And that I think is a very interesting question. Would you still write if nobody ever read it? And the answer is yes. Writers write because they have to. Um, it's a lot more gratifying when people <laughs> read it. But, you know, if you're not published, you still get to call yourself a writer because you're doing the work. Um, so <laughs> I think I would still write. Uh, you know, you think about Salinger, who lived not that far from me, who they found all his manuscripts in his garage, wow. you know, that were never published, but he was still writing. Yeah. Um, so I would I would keep writing. I actually I have actually thought about this. Like I was in prison and I didn't have access to a pencil. <laughs> I, I, can't, I don't know why my brain went here. Be like I would keep telling myself a story yeah. over and over and adding to it so that I constantly had 
you know, I, I had a thread of a story going somehow. Like mm-hmm. I would just make myself remember it. And um, I think you can you can be a storyteller even if you never type or write or send anything to paper. Um, so I think I would still be doing that. I mean, there's also a complete world where, you know, I am doing nothing except baking amazing bread, <laughs> and, yeah. you know, or becoming a pastry chef. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or just traveling to the places that I still want to go that I haven't been either, uh, you know, because I, I love doing that. It's it's it, no, it's so true. And I mean, storytelling obviously was you know was an oral tradition for forever. Yeah. That's the thing about creativity; it finds a new outlet. It's a oh. little bit like a, a river, you know, with the tributary. If you dam up a river, it's going to bleed out somewhere else. One hundred percent. What is your definition of living in the moment? Um. I think it is being attuned to the world around you, but also being cognizant of the platform you have, the podium you have, and what you say when you're standing at it. Mm. Um, you know, I am I am fortunate. I'm not at the beginning of my career anymore. I'm like very, very entrenched. And I am very lucky to have people who seem to care what I say. And because of that, I think really hard about what stories I choose to tell and why I choose to tell them. And it's not even a novel. It can be a newsletter I send out. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not just going to send a newsletter for the sake of sending a newsletter. I'm going to talk about something that is important to me in the hopes that, again, maybe one person hears that mm-hmm. and, you know, and somehow thinks differently than they did when, before they started reading the newsletter. And, um, yeah, I, I think that kind of goes back to like doing the best that you can at any given moment. You know, when you have a place, when you have a place in this world and a space in this world, what are you doing to make sure that when you leave it, it's better than the way you found it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Would you call that if you had to, you know, sort of assign that to a value, um, Mm -hmm. or, a you know, a tenant of yours, what word would you use for that? Stewardship. Mm, yeah. You know, cause I, and I do think that's funny when I think of stewardship, like when I think of the people who are making the world a better place, I think of like Greta Thunberg, you know, who's doing amazing things with her little life and, and making people wake up and listen. And, mm-hmm. um, I think about, you know, the tireless advocates who work in election law, um, of the people who are uh, the people on the front lines, you know, who are in hospitals risking their own health to treat COVID deniers. Those, those are people who are moving the needle of the world in a beautiful way. Um, but I do think that you can be a steward of thought and opinion too. Mm. Mm -hmm. In some ways, that's what I think artists are for. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. No, because art is something and we could go off on a tangent, you know, that that we create that nobody knew they needed until it was created. Yeah. No, absolutely. And then you're like, oh my God, I didn't know I needed this, but oh, I did. Exactly. Those are the best, right? When they come back yeah. to you and say, thank you. Thank you. And you're like, what? You're like, I have to speak. Yeah. yeah, I know. But it's like, I saw myself in that. And, you know, it's that idea again of, of literature, of, of shows, of music being both a window and a mirror it takes yeah. you out, out somewhere and also allows you to see yourself in it. Yeah. And connection. Right. I mean, it's absolute connection. Um, in coaching, we talk about um, gremlins, the inner critic, right? <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I have plenty of, of overt. You don't have any. I'm so curious though, because you know my whole sort of philosophy is that you know some people are like, I've got to get rid of that voice in my head. Well, that voice in your head was created to protect you at some point. And it did, it was very useful at some point, but <laughs> what, what, what voices in your head do you have that you'd like to recast their roles, rewrite their script? Um, I honestly, I think the voices in my head that the ones I wish I could silence are the ones that listen to the outside critics, you know, like for some reason you can get a hundred complimentary comments. And of course, what sticks out is the negative one. Yeah. You know, and part of part of my mission recently has been trying to explain to people when you send that tweet, when you post on someone's Facebook wall and you tag an author in a negative review, they read it. You know, it's not going into a void. They're human. Mm -hmm. Um, Be aware of what you're doing and whether what you're saying is constructive or whether what you're saying is just an opinion. Yeah. which is totally fine. But then don't go to the person's Facebook page to tell them that you hated their book, you know, things like that. Yeah. So um, I think I try, I, I, I do try to think about that. Uh, I, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to focus and get in a, a weird hell loop where mm. you're just hearing the negative voices because that's crippling. And I think a lot of writers get debilitated by that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I would say in theater, it is very easy to be debilitated. You hear no a lot more than you hear yes. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the tastemakers are very select and they like a certain thing. I mean, you know, let's face it. Yeah. But there are a lot of ways to connect with audiences and to help audiences find joy or meaning mm-hmm. that may not be Ben Brantley or Jesse Green's cup of tea. Yeah. And that's okay. You know, you have to remember when you read a review, it's one person's opinion. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because it sounds like what the gremlin is saying, I don't know, you tell me, is, is, is he or she saying, I told you so, or you're not good enough, or you better not, you better be careful. Is it more a cautionary? Like, um, oh, see, you were right. I mean, yeah. what, what you write isn't what's going to win the awards, get the nominations. You know, and that's a whole, that is another entire discussion. Commercial writing is uh, very different from literary writing. The books themselves do not have to be quite so different. It's all in how they're marketed and how they're shelved. And it's a very arbitrary distinction. And you Mm -hmm. can have excellent commercial fiction and really terrible literary fiction. But um, excellent commercial fiction is not often given its due. Mm -hmm. And when you add to that the uh, gender discrimination in publishing, that's a whole different ball of wax where uh, if a woman writes a book it is considered a women's fiction. Right. What they really mean is the woman wrote the book. I, I mean, you can call my books chick lit or women's fiction. It's very bad chick lit because it's not very you know funny and uplifting. But in terms of women's fiction, fifty percent of my fan mail comes from men. So I don't know what you want to tell them. But you know what? Yeah. There's, there's this immediate default. No, for sure. I'm so curious. Are you more upset with? Um, yourself for taking that like or or are you more upset with the person for doing it like are you more upset that someone is using their voice not for good or are you more upset that they said it about you i am more way more upset that they're not using their voice for yeah, good way more I mean. upset there were points during the pandemic particularly with theater critics who were panning um productions that were being done online which for god's sake they kept theater alive yeah 
they kept people connected to an entire medium. Yep. And my thought was, hi, excuse me, what are you doing to help your industry? Yeah. Right? No, abs- absolutely. No. Yeah. And I was like, uh, you know, fine. You want, you don't like what, what was created, you know, by some theater company in Chicago, whatever, but you could give people just a tiny modicum of respect. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. All right. Can you finish this phrase real quick? Most people think Jody Pico dot, 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 but the truth is Jody Pico. Oh yeah. Most people think that I am really dark and cerebral and angsty because of the things that I choose to write. Mm. And actually I am very bubbly, very fun. And, uh, and yeah, people are always shocked when they meet me face to face because they think that I must be, you know, very serious and dark all the time because of the topics that I choose to address. But I'm actually not like that at all. We do. I'm going to say what makes you and I'm going to say a word and you just say the first thing that comes to mind, take Great. your time. It do, it's not really rapid fire, but you know, okay. it could be. All right. So for instance, what makes you hungry? <laughs> um, <laughs> wow. Uh, I'm thinking this, the, this time clocks because I tend to fast. I don't eat before noon. So when I see the clock turn to 1130, I'm like, mm, I'm hungry now. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I just honestly, what makes me hungry is fasting. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. Uh, that's yeah. fair. Yeah, no, that's, answer, that's true. That's amazing. All right. What, um, what makes you sad? Uh, right now, America. Mm. What inspires you? My kids, my kids inspire me. They are, um, like I said, they are just in their own ways. They are making the world a much better place. And mm. I, uh, sometimes I just step back with, you know, the, the gaze of an observer and think I would want to know them even if I hadn't created them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's cool about that. And you in the context of you and the way you work and everything is that kids, as we know, as, as mothers, <laughs> you can't control. <laughs> I know. So there's a point where you look back and go, oh, all right, I did okay. What frustrates you? What frustrates me? Mm. Uh, what frustrates me is uh, discrimination um, in the fields where I'm working really hard to climb mountains. Um, very often there are very real ceilings that exist because of race, because of gender. I obviously do not feel the racial element of that, but there is gender discrimination that's very strong in both publishing and in theater. Mm. Oh, what makes you laugh? What makes me laugh? <laughs> okay, what makes me laugh is a running standoff between my husband and one of our three dogs. Every morning, Alvin, um, Alvin needs to get a pill because he has arthritis. And my husband has done everything that he can to feed him this pill. He has tried to bury the pill in, you know, every kind of adult food you can imagine. And he can smell it. And so he, he eats his way around this pill and spits it out just right at his feet every single day. Oh, my God. And the best thing is that if I do it, he'll take it. There's a running standoff with my husband. And it's just, it's so entertaining. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, what makes you angry? Um, right now, people who won't get vaccinated. That makes me very angry. And finally, what makes you grateful? 
what makes me grateful is um, really it's, it's going to come down to, I think my husband, I could not do what I do without him. Mm. He makes my life run so that I can really do everything else that I need to do. And mm. that started at the very beginning when he was like, I was making zero money, but he was like, you need to write. So you should write. Mm. Not everyone gets that kind of partner. And I'm very lucky to have that. Absolutely. Yeah. If you could tell um, 10 year old, eight year old Jody something that you know now that you didn't know then that maybe she would have really liked to have heard or would have been helpful, what would you tell her? Oh, you can make a living doing this. Mm. You know, because I didn't know any real writers. And my mom said, you know, that's great. You want to be a writer who's going to support you. So it was, it's very good for me to know that there are people out there who can make this work. I think that's true in like any, any career in the arts. Yeah. And that's very inspiring. I mean, that's, that'll be great for people to hear, you know? Um, and you know, I'm, I'm not surprised that, <laughs> that you're seeing yeah. exactly what you would tell them and everybody yeah. else that wants to listen. I listened last yeah. night to, um, to the speech you gave at Princeton at your alma mater. Yeah. And, and um, I loved it. First of all, Thanks. it really encompasses, if anyone wants to get to know Jody a little bit more, everything that you sort of touched on, right. With stewardship yeah. all the way. Yeah actually, a, I, I love doing that speech. It was really an honor and it was, I, I, I enjoyed writing it and delivering it. Um, what are the top three things that have happened so far today? Oh, <laughs> well, um, I, uh, first of all, I got an amazing night's sleep. I went to bed at seven o'clock because I did not feel well yesterday and wow. I really needed, I think I just needed to sleep. So I woke up feeling very refreshed. That was the first thing. The second thing was that I had arranged to take a hike with a neighbor of mine and we usually walk um between six to eight miles together but we decided we were going to do 10 Whoa. and part of this involves going past a construction zone with some very nasty people from the department of transportation who made us literally climb a wall a cliff wall to get past a bridge construction they were terrible oh, but we did gosh. it and um and the third thing was my husband texted me to say i'm making you an impossible burger for lunch mm. i'm very excited about that so um i probably should let you go have that burger i so appreciate you taking the time to be in the moment with me today yeah, thank you really fun thank you for having me lisa this was great it was my pleasure my pleasure go eat Bye. <laughs> Bye. in music stop time is that beautiful moment where the band is suspended in rhythmic unison supporting the soloist to express their individuality in the moment, I encourage you to take that time and create your own rhythm. Until next time, I'm Lisa Hopkins. Thanks for listening.